1: fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
2: This is Eat Sleep Worker Pete. It's a podcast about making work better. Apologies, there's been no episodes the last couple of weeks. It's... um, my partner started a new job and so I've been on full-time childcare. So apart from a couple of 5am starts where I've been trying to make progress writing a book, it's been, there's been very little time to get things done. Anyway, good to be with you today. Like I always say, if you're interested in workplace culture and fixing work, then the newsletter and you, and you can get that at eatsleepworkrepeat.com and that has all of the the latest discussions, people musing about what's going to happen with remote work and uh, links to the best articles I've seen that week. So I'd love you to join that. Today's episode is a discussion about the importance of disagreement. And I think this is incredibly timely. A lot of us have sort of gone through different stages of lockdown and we're trying to work out whether meetings have been better or worse, how we can have more creativity and and a better quality of discourse um, while we've been working remote. And one of the the things that you might have noticed is that a lot of people feel that remote meetings have become quite consensual or or quite uh, focused on agreement. And uh, especially because today's guest, Ian Leslie, talks about how modern work tends to value people getting on with each other. You know, we're, we're asked to judge each other based on how agreeable we are. And so as a consequence, it means to some extent we do eliminate some forms of disagreement. Ian Leslie's belief is very strongly that disagreement is both healthy and essential. He previously had a book out called Born Liars, Why We Can't Live Without Deceit, and Curious, Your Desire to Know and Why Your Future Depends on It. And his new book is called Conflicted, How Productive Disagreement Leads to Better Outcomes. The book's out at the end of February. And so this is a discussion really about the nature of disagreement, how we can resolve disagreement and there's some brilliant stories along the way. So I was really delighted to be the first interview that Ian had in the run up to the release of the book. You might know Ian from some of his other stuff. He uh, his newsletter had a big feature on Paul McCartney a few weeks ago that was widely circulated and I've included it in the show notes. Uh, a wonderful selection of fantastic Paul McCartney stories. And Ian's ability to tell a great story is very much in evidence here. There's some lovely examples from Nelson Mandela to how the Beatles resolved disagreements. And if you do find yourself having disagreements in your life, and I guess that's all of us, then you're going to find some brilliant advice on how you can make sure that they are healthy disagreements. Really enjoyable chat. Just a quick note, I think my microphone is a little bit clipped in this, meaning at the top end it gets a bit fuzzy. It's just for, you probably won't notice it, but I just wanted to call it out right at the outset. So this is my discussion with the author of Conflicted, Ian Leslie. Ian, great to chat to you. Thank you. Um, Very sort of interesting and timely book, I think. Firstly, because... You know, you talk about the the nature of disagreement and we seem to be in a world filled with disagreement. But also, I read all of it with a prism of thinking about the pandemic and thinking about how our relationships have changed somewhat. What made you write a book about uh, healthy disagreements and disagreeing?
0: Well, it started out just as me sort of mulling over how many bad arguments uh there are on social media <laughs> you know how how quickly disagreements devolve into squalid little fights um and how many sort of um bad reasons and bad bad arguments are made in, into support of, of of certain points and how things become personal so quickly and so on you know something we've we've all noticed i i, I think and and, and, and also, of course, just in the wider sense, in the in a sense of our, our political discourse and how sort of polarizing and unpleasant a lot of it has become. So I had that kind of like rattling around my head. Um, and the, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, actually, this is a, a deeper question. I mean, that's a pretty big question itself. Why, why is that happening? Mm. There's a, there's a kind of deeper question, which is, well, um, maybe this is the culmination of much deeper trends in society where we're kind of throwing people together from all sorts of different backgrounds with all sorts of different experiences and all the di- different types of view. Um, we are, uh, flattening kind of hierarchies everywhere, right? So, so it's, it's, it's no longer the case that in a company, you know, everybody just does what the boss tells them to do. Not not, not that it ever was, but you know, that's the, mm. the broad sweep is towards more kind of democracy um, in companies and more democracy, if you like, at, at home as well, right? The, the the traditional roles of of the the man, the husband, and the wife, and, and 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 indeed the children in a household, they've all changed radically in the last fifty years, right? So these are these are actually deep rooted changes that make disagreement and conflict much more prominent in our lives than mm. they ever used to be. And, and then you think about it and you think, well, nobody's prepared us for this. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we haven't, we haven't thought about how to do this well. And now suddenly we have a lot of it. So our arguments tend to devolve either into fights or, 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 or it's the fight or flight thing. You know, we are fight or, or we, we avoid them altogether. Um, and so I, I think we need to a recognize that, that, Everybody's having more conflict and more disagreement. This is amplified and kind of um, um, turbocharged by by the internet, by social media. And B, we're just not very good at it. And and actually, it's a set, it's a skill or a set of skills that we need to learn. Um, and 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 the skill is, you know, productive disagreement. How to use a disagreement? How to use dis- disagreement and conflict to actually make progress, to get insights, to get ideas. And indeed, to get to know somebody better. Um, So, so that's kind of what it—the book became about. And and I look at it through the the prism of that. I start actually with with just with the home. Like I talk I talk about relationships and 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 Mm. families, Um, and then I kind of gradually widen the angle so so that I talk about the workplace uh, and about and about innovation and dynamism uh, uh, in, in business. And then I also talked about these, these kind of wider political questions. You know, we, we still haven't solved this question. We've been trying to solve it for a few hundred years now, which is how do you run a society in which lots of people disagree about lots of very important things? How do, how do you keep everyone together? Um, that's, you know, I think there was a point a few years ago where we thought we'd basically solve that and we haven't, we've still got to learn it. Um, so right from the, right from the home, right up to, to the wider picture, I think we just got to get. Better at disagreement.
2: Yeah. And the the fascinating thing, uh, because you sort of go through so many things, so many examples, and so many situations, it's impossible to not find yourself firstly thinking, well, analyzing your own arguments and your own conflicts and trying to interpret, you know, based on what you're teaching us, okay, how could I have done that differently? Or which 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 of these aspects do I recognize in me? And I guess at the heart of what I learned from what you said is, is why we find conflict so visceral and so anxiety-forming. It, it, it does trigger that f- fight or flight, doesn't it? There is something when someone disagrees with us, we can perceive it, Mistakenly, but we can perceive it as a threat to us rather than a disagreement of perspective.
0: Yeah, exactly, and and that that's our first instinct, right? And our instinct is to identify a disagreement as as a personal threat or a personal attack, even if it's only a mild one. But but that's what it triggers in us. And in fact, there is some sort of neuroscientific evidence for this that it <clears> that the, the same sort of Brain neuroscientific reaction happens in 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 argument and and disagreement as when we perceive a, a physical threat to, to ourselves, um, and and again you can see why our uh, whatever it is uh, sixty thousand year old brain <laughs> might not be prepared for a situation in which in which you're having. Lots of disagreements, quite vociferous, vociferous disagreements, with people who aren't actually going to club you over the head, right? You know, mm. <laughs> hopefully, we, we've moved on, and, and uh, you can have disagreements now, which which aren't inevitably about um, you know trying to crush the the other person. But our, our brains have not like fully adjusted to to that. To that new new, real, new reality, um, and so just being aware of it is is the first step, right? You know, somebody disagrees with me, I already feel a little bit on edge, right? And 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 just kind of being aware of that is is the first step towards you know avoiding the the, the pitfalls that that can lead you into.
2: Yeah, because you mentioned along the way that modern work seems to place a premium on people getting along with each other. And that in itself can either result in passive aggression or it can result in people going along with things they don't necessarily agree with. And all of these things just seem to be in service of us doing our jobs badly, that effectively we can all be a slightly more agreeable version of ourselves as long as we allow everything we disagree with to pass, and so I'm intrigued with what can we learn from the companies specifically to kick off first—the companies or people who've set about creating a system that does this well. So it may, maybe, maybe it's a, a about face to start with companies, but I, I um, you know, whether we start with pe- people or companies, I'm just intrigued. What might the models be that we could create to avoid this?
0: I think it's incredibly important um that that companies um, have uh, and and if they don't have it, try and create a culture of open disagreement and 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 open conflict a culture where it is okay to 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 argue and disagree um with each other uh, uh, laterally and also up and down right so it's okay it's actually good to disagree with your boss. And your boss is not going to interpret this <laughs> as some sort of attempted undermining of his or her position, right? In fact, your boss is going to welcome it. Because the first thing to say is that, uh, and I, I provide a lot of evidence for this in the book, I, I won't go through it, but but there are enormous benefits of, of good disagreement, right? It makes us collectively smarter. It unlocks our co- collective intelligence. It's probably the best way of thinking that we have disagreeing with each other st- testing each other's arguments right stress testing our hypothesis um it also makes us feel uh, ultimately if it's done right it actually makes us feel more cohesive and more and, and closer to each other as as teams um because we're being honest with each other and we're learning about what each other mm. think and 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 feel and the worst thing that you can do I didn't realize this when I started the book. So I actually thought that the, the worst thing here is we get into too many toxic arguments. And actually the more research I did on it, the real problem is that because we find it stressful, um, we actually avoid it. And that's actually a worse right. problem than, than, than getting into it and, and, and doing it badly. And w- when you avoid open confrontation, open disagreement, open conflict, it, it doesn't go away. It just gets pushed under the carpet. It becomes passive aggression. Um, and it becomes office politics, right? Which is a kind of the the, the institutional world word, word for, for passive aggression, um, and that is just corrosive to to relationships, to to the culture of the company, to to innovation, to creativity, to good decision making, to everything. So you have to you have to avoid that, and the only way to avoid that is to have it out in the open and create a, a place a space where people feel okay about it. So. There's a couple of examples of, of companies that, that do. One I talk about in the book. One I actually don't talk about in the book because I only read about it more recently, but I talk about the first one is is Southwest Airlines. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hadn't realized um, until reading uh, a, a book about Southwest uh, Airlines that um, the, the airlines uh, are, are kind of um, – they're, they're hives of of conflict and passive aggression, or at least the American ones are. Um, right. So this research, we've done a lot of research on the cultures of of American airlines and other airlines. By the way, this is a few years ago, so it may have changed, but, but this is what she found the 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 people who are flying the planes um, uh, look down on the people who are uh, in, in the crew. The people in the crew look down on the the people in the gate. The people at the gate look down on the people who are checking in. Or, you know, who are packing. It's it's a kind of like there's lots of different fiefdoms, and they're all kind of fighting with each other. And there's this kind of hierarchical kind yeah. of struggle, and they're all bitching about each other all the time, basically. Um, and, but they all have to, if they're working well, they all have to work together very, very intensely and very, very collaboratively. And and that's particularly important when you're turning around a plane. Um, and, and, you know, the less time that plane spends on the, on the tarmac, um, the more productive, uh, the more successful the company is. Southwest Airlines is an extraordinarily successful airline. It's probably the most successful airline, um, ever. Um, it's been, Profitable yeah. 40, 50 years straight, which is almost unheard of for, for, for airlines. And the thing that it got right was that turnaround time. And the reason it got the turnaround time right is that it's, it became much better at collaboration, um, between all these different parts of, uh, of the company. And one of the major things that they addressed directly was how do you have you get your disagreements and your conflict out in the open? Um, and so whenever they identify that there is some sort of tension, somebody's pissed off with somebody, somebody doesn't think somebody else is pulling their weight, they don't let it lie. They don't just pass over it. They say, right, we're going to have a, they call it come to Jesus meeting. <laughs> um, and you, yeah. you get the various parties together and, and, and that, that term come to Jesus meeting is, is kind of appropriate because it, it's all, it's like quite soul bearing, right? They, they really lay it out there. They might have a big argument. They tell each other very honestly how they're feeling.
2: And who's in? Who's in this meeting? So, so is this like? Is this like a pilot when he's kicking off with baggage? Is it there and then while they're hot and in their uniforms? I don't
0: know if it's in their uniforms, but but it, it's just like it's it's a it's a, a meeting that they arrange right in advance. We're going to have these come to Jesus meetings, and we're going to get together. Um, and we're gonna, we're gonna speak honestly about what's, what's going on here, right? Now, sometimes it will be emotional. Sometimes it will just be, I'm sure, just very kind of irrational, kind of like, Oh, I see. This is working. This isn't working. So if we, we can, we can, we can fix this. The point is they make a space for that disagreement to be out in the open and, and talked through, um, properly rather than just accepting, which many companies do, that all this kind of backbiting and bitching about each other is just part of, of work. We just got to get over it because they see it as poisonous. It, you know, it, it undermines uh, uh, relationships, undermines collaboration, and ultimately that that is going to hit your y- y- your bottom line. Um, so it's actually very been very important to the business, and and actually other other airlines have adopted it. Yeah, the other example which I just touch on briefly because I, I don't know enough about it really to to talk about it, but. The the book that retails The founder of Netflix uh, published um, uh, last year called "No Rules Rules." Um, it's all about the Netflix culture, which is very unique um, and and incredibly interesting in lots of ways. But that is one of his absolutely central themes in that book. Is I want people to have open disagreements with each other and with me and with, you know, with senior management. And it's become part of our culture and actually new joiners, new arrivals are often quite taken aback when when one of their first meetings, they'll see somebody really junior just taking on the CEO or the the CMO or whatever whatever it is, somebody really senior in the company saying, I think you're wrong about this. This is not going to work. And, uh, you know, at first they're shocked and then they're like, they get used to it. And they realize this is just the way it is. Because what they'll also see at the end of the meeting is that senior person saying, thank you. And genuinely saying it, not just as a sort of formality, but thank you for challenging me on that. I really, you know, I needed that. And I, you know, I've, 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 I've learned from it. So it's a lot of it is about senior leaders modeling good attitude to disagreement. It's senior leaders showing that they don't mind being, in fact, it's not that they don't mind being challenged, they want to be challenged, they welcome their arguments, their decisions being challenged because they know that's how, how to strengthen them and not seeing it as a kind of threat to their authority, which is which is obviously what many many do.
2: that's interesting so so if if like atavistically we interpret people disagreeing with us as a threat to us actually what these organizations do is they they try and deprogram that by almost the leaders demonstrating that we don't feel threatened by disagreement so almost you shouldn't feel threatened by disagreement is that right
0: i think that's exactly right I, i i think that's a really good way of putting it um I it, there's an example in the Netflix book. If it's I guess it's not quite a, a disagreement, but but I still think it's illuminating on, on that point of view. Where uh, somebody who's interviewed in the book, she talks about having giving a presentation to to a group of senior executives. She's very nervous. It's a big presentation. She's a few minutes in when her friend and and close colleague at the back of the room stops her and she says, "Hey, can you can you just stop? Because you're you're speaking too fast. You're garbling. You're missing your main points." Now, if that happened to me, I, I would feel humiliated <laughs> and furious. Mm. Um she did not feel that at all because that's she 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 welcomed it. Like she was telling the story to say, you know, and it was great because I was. So I just took a glass of water and it and everything went really well. And and I believe it because you're right, if the culture of the company is 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 different, it just programs you differently to respond to that kind of challenge. And that d- disagreement, because everyone in that room knew that everybody else knew that it's okay to be challenged and disagreed with yeah, in, in, yeah. in this room. That's the way we do things here. And then suddenly when that happens, then that sense of threat and, and humiliation that, that, that is raised by, by disagreement doesn't exist anymore. So if you get the mm. culture right, you, you can actually reprogram our, our you know, slightly out of date old brains.
2: Yeah. And and for me, it, it was an, an idea. And the, the way you described it, it, it made me uh, realize that sometimes we, when it comes to leadership stuff, we, we celebrate the faddish things that are in the moment. Um, and specifically, I remember, so when I started my career, I used to work at Capital Radio and the boss there um, used to turn up. I was in like a horrible little offshoot and the boss there used to turn up um, once every month and he'd say, I'll take any question, the spikier, the better. And so I was like 23 and I used to ask pointedly sort of, you know, I, I saw myself as a, a brummy uh, Jeremy Paxman sort of in the, in a yeah. you know, pale and, and hopeless sense. But I used to ask these really spiky questions. He loved it but you used to get people around me who'd take a step away from me for fearing like they would be associated. And, um, and people used to, people used to say afterwards, yeah, yeah, you asked what we all wanted to know, but, um, you know, I just don't want to be anywhere near you when you're asking something. And he used to come and after a while, he'd like, would turn up for one of these sessions and he'd say, um, where's that guy? Where's, where's that guy who asks me the difficult questions. And for me, it created such an important model of the culture there. Because it was like, yeah, I guarantee we're going to make mistakes. And he would often start, he would say, yeah, that was a mistake, that was a mistake. I guarantee we're going to make mistakes, but we're never going to We're never going to lie about them to save face. And for me, it was like it it systematized all these things. Now, in the meantime, we hear all about, you know, the secret of leadership is vulnerability, the the secret of this. And so we're getting lots of sort of Hollywood sub-stories from leaders. But, you know, this for me felt very relevant. The idea that, you know, demonstrating that none of us is beyond being challenged is a really vital component. Of, of good culture, I thought. Yeah,
0: and you touched on something here, which is that uh it's w- there's a lot of emphasis on on uh, in modern corporate culture on 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 sensitivity and um and get getting, getting along with each other and 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 that's good, right? I um that's people should feel psychologically safe, mm. right? In fact, that's a lot of what I'm talking about here: is feeling safe to to, to disagree. But what's up, what is sometimes missed in this is is that the conflict and an open confrontation is sometimes automatically assumed to be antithetical to that that spirit, right? That somehow is something that we need to avoid. That he the ga- the goal of this meeting is to reach a consensus, or we need to re- come to agreement. And people who kind of. Peel away from that consensus and dare to challenge it and are and say, Well, hang on, how about this? They are kind of sidelined, um, or or, or looked down on. Um, or people worry about them, you know. The fact that your colleagues say, Hey, I really wanted to know that, but but <laughs> but they kind of put some distance between them, isn't that crazy? I mean, it's absolutely crazy. I know you create a, a, a normal, that's normal corporate culture, but it's mad.
2: The really interesting th- thing for me is I left that company and joined another company, and I took my, um, my truth-seeking, uh, questioning to that company, and it really wasn't welcomed by that company. In fact, the the chief exec of that place was sort of baffled by it. He saw it as almost like a suicide mission. Why are you asking me these questions about our, uh, you know, our strategy here or these things? And for me, actually, it became well, look, you know, if I'm not going to get that degree of transparency that I saw and and so valued, then I guess it's self-selecting. If, if, you know, me asking those questions is going to be career limiting, then I guess I'd rather know that and discover it either the good way or the bad way than be at a company that doesn't value that. So it, it, for me, it became this really defining thing because at the first place, the boss had really welcomed it. At the second place, the boss accommodated it to some extent, but was c- confused about it. And l- it just became this intriguing thing for me. Wow. I'm only really going to value working in places where that degree of, like you say, psychological safety or that, that d- ability to, uh, to, to tolerate questioning is welcome. So, so it was like, it was really intriguing for, for me to sort of uh, to see that, let me sort of go on and ask you uh, about something else because a lot, a lot of this secret of disagreement is often recognizing that disagre- that conversations are taking place on two planes. That there'll be quite often you talk about husband and wife disagreements, um, or you know disagreements that take place between two people, and there's, there's often the emotional layer of it, and then the factual layer, and it seems the, there's an art in recognizing. Which, uh, where the issue is actually lying? So you know, it, it might be that factually everyone's on the same page, but these questions of emotion or respect that seem to be really important for us to understand that subtext.
0: Yeah, I'm emotional and factual is is a good way of putting it. the the The, the communication um, scholars who, who who study this talk about. Uh, the relationship level and, and the content level, right? So so in any conversation, you've got this kind of the above ground conversation, which is the, the content level, which is the thing that we are talking about. Um, and you've got the relationship level, which is unspoken, non-verbalized, and it involves questions like, what do you think about me? And what do I think about you? Do you respect me? Do you like me? Do I respect you? Do I, do I, yeah. Right. And that conversation is going on at the same time as you're having the, the, the content conversation. Now, recognizing that you are operating on two planes at once is the first step towards making that, making this whole conversation go better. Because the problem is, if that subterranean conversation, the, the relationship conversation is not going well for whatever reason, then the content conversation tends to go badly as well. Right. it'll either be very thin and 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 superficial or it will devolve into in into a, a sort of a toxic argument okay um so and and very skillful uh people who are have good interpersonal skills who are basically skillful disagreers are very conscious of this, whether they've learnt it or or they do it intuitively. But they are they try to get some agreement at that subterranean level that that this is the relationship that's going to work for us, right? It might mean that I show you that I think of you as an equal. It doesn't necessarily mean that right There might be situations where it's very clear that that I am the boss and, and and you're the subordinate, and we're both happy with that right that that can also work fine, but you have to find some. Agreement on what our relationship with it, and and you communicate that in all sorts of ways, right? You can com- communicate that in in your body language, in the tone of voice that you use, and in, in what you do with your eyes, um, in certain kind of the color of the language that 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 you're using, the timbre of your voice, right? All sorts of ways. Um, but that relationship has to be that that level has to be kind of satisfied before you can get to to the content. Once it is. Once you don't have to worry about that at all, and and both or all of you are very happy about the relationships, you can get really deeply into the content and you can disagree all the hell you like because because mm, you know yeah. that relationship level is strong. It's settled. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to worry about that. There isn't a big part of my brain wearing away going, what's going on here? What do they think about me? What does she think about me? What does he think about me? That's all gone. You're just thinking about what's the problem that we're solving here or what's the idea that we're, we're trying to create here? And then you have a much more productive meeting. It is a skill. Like some people have it intuitively, but but there are things that you could do and that's kind of what the, the book is about, really.
2: Because it seems like when we've got this, this layer of the way I would frame it is social identity. But when we've got this layer of shared social identity, um, then pretty much everything flows from that. And it's when we feel... So, you know, the brilliant examples you give are you go... I know you're a music fan and you go through some... And the great thing about music is we've got so many accessible uh, bands and and, um, and examples that we can draw upon. So when there's this shared social identity that we are partners in this together the Beatles being a good example they really didn't disagree it, or in any sort of no uh maybe that's wrong they didn't fall out so their their disagreements never reached the point that they damaged their relationships I think you broadly say not until the end not until the the, the, the end yeah um, and so it's, like, it's really intriguing. When we've sort of got this shared collective identity, it seems to, like you say, <laughs> it sets ups, us up well that we don't feel a disagreement is going to jeopardise our relationships with each other.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, I love that, Yes, you're right, I'm a music fan, and the, but the rock bands are just so fascinating because they are like microcosms. Of these wider questions, just like the family is a microcosm of society, right? So I just love kind of scaling things, like looking at it in a kind of fractal sense, right? So you go down to a small group and then you can scale up to, to society and you'll see the same patterns again and again. Yeah. And so one of these great kind of laboratories for studying conflict and, and creativity is, is, is the rock group. And you'll see different models, right? There, there isn't kind of one way of, of doing it. Some groups do very well by putting one guy in charge, right? Whether that's James Brown and his band or Bruce you know, Springsteen and the e-, e street band, there's kind of no question. Uh, in fact, Springsteen says in his book, I think explicitly, I, I don't run this as a democracy yeah, that nobody in this band wants me to run it as a democracy. They know that I'm the decision maker. Um, and then you've got other bands like REM who, one of the most successful bands for, for you know, good sort of 20 years, in the world who were uh, explicitly kind of democratic. Every decision they made, everybody had an equal say in it. Anybody had a veto on it, which is also something the Beatles did, by the way, uh, right from the beginning. They said, Anyone, if any one of us doesn't want to do something, then none of us will do it. So they had a kind of veto. So they they thought about these yeah. bands, the, the ones that stay together anyway and are creative. They think about these questions um, and they work out a, a way of working together that means they can have their disagreements out without it it kind of splitting the band apart. And the ones who do it really well, as I say, are the ones who tend to have it out in the open. Um, and the Rolling Stones are another, another good example, you know, making it really, at least for, for during their prime years... Um would really kind of openly disagree with each other, but it, 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 it didn't become a kind of poisonous thing to tearing the band apart and they stayed together for a long time do, doing great work
2: here 's why i'm really intrigued so um for a long time I worked for eight years at Twitter, and one of the things that you know i've I've learned through that is that when we feel some agreement with the person that we're conversing with through a screen. That social media can be this sort of, any sort of communication can feel like it's filled, imbued with community. It's filled with warmth and friendship. And then when we have any moment where we're disagreeing through a screen, because we don't have that Backdrop of friendship and connection and community. It seems it really does trigger that fight or flight. It does really trigger our sense of being um, at, uh, personally attacked. And, you know, anyone who's received hostile tweets or hostile messages online, you know, it really gets the heart racing in a uh, a way that we just don't encounter in, in normal day-to-day life. So I'm intrigued then. I w- I'm intrigued whether the way that we're working right now with people not necessarily having an easy friendship layer that f- in an analog way made us feel comfortable that the band were all happy with each other. I wonder whether disagreement is going to be harder remotely or whether you've got any lessons of... Actually, how we can adapt to it?
0: I think it's I think it's harder, um, and I don't quite know what the answer is yet. And we'll we'll kind of work it out as we go. I hope, but um, I, I do I do think it's one reason to to get back to the office <laughs> that that we need to get back to the office so, so that mm-hmm. we can tell each other we're wrong about stuff. Um, I, I I think that that there are obviously there are strengths and weaknesses of of virtual meetings. But I think one of the the drawbacks is that it tends to push meetings towards a consensus more quickly than than would happen in real life. And that, that you can end up with a kind of superficial uh, agreement, a superficial consensus a little bit more easily than, than you might in real life. And the reason for that is going back to what we were talking about, you have this kind of relationship level, which is quite subtle and involves quite a lot of social intelligence. And then you have the content level. And what Zoom or whatever it is tends to do is it makes it easy for us to focus on the content level, but we lose a lot of the signals that we get at the relationship level. And that makes us very uncertain of each other or a little bit more uncertain of each other. We don't Mm. feel we can, in inverted commas, read the room. Um, in a way that we can in 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 a physical meeting, um, and so as I say, what happens when we feel that that disagreement is a little bit risky and threatening is that we we avoid it. So I, I think Zoom meetings tend tend to be over polite, <clears throat> and the other kind of thing that 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 makes that uh, more likely is that it becomes a series of people saying one thing after another, right? So so you you, you have a kind of. Yeah, somebody will talk to for two minutes. Somebody else will talk for two minutes, um, because we don't have the the bandwidth yet, or the 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 compression. I don't know whatever it is, but they, they don't kind of we don't speak in real time. There's a little bit of a gap, and that means that you don't have that kind of ability to. Almost talk over each other, or sometimes literally talk over each other. But but mm. you know that kind of incredibly fast, quick interplay of voices and points of view that you can get in a, in a very kind of animated uh, discussion, right? Not all meetings or can or yeah. should be like that, but some of the best ones are. And I think that kind of quality is of conversation is harder to capture um, over video.
2: Yeah, it's really intriguing. You know, a couple of things. Um, the, that you hear that you, so some people say small meetings can have a candor to them. You know, if you've got five or six people having a discussion through Zoom, they uh, look, they report to me, people report to me that they say, actually, the quality of the conversation seems better than we're used to. But when you've got 20 people in a room, I think there is a danger that. We, we don't quite get that level of discourse and we don't get the level of comfortable disagreement that we might normally have, have had before. So yeah, it, it is really intriguing how um, how removing that relationship layer is going to affect things. I th- just going back to sort of the, the book, one of the, the stories that I found richest, and I, th- I think it's largely because I suspect we have such warmth for the, the chap but the the story of Nelson Mandela, um, and it's such a beautiful story and it's so sophisticated in terms of, you know, the unpicking of it. So, so explain to me, talk us through this story, because I think there's actually teachable moments in so much of what happened with this, this Afrikaans gentleman that he met.
0: Mandela when he when he uh came out of jail he effectively became the president elect the, the leader of of the, the new nation he faced a very threatening and dangerous far right revolt led by an afrikaner former general very senior very highly respected within the army um fierce uh, amazing kind of fighter, um, who was also, you know, a far right racist, right? There's no, make no bones about it. And this guy, Virgil, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce his name right, so maybe I'll just avoid it. He was basically uniting a, a, a big militia uh, around him and was, was threatening to kind of take on, um, uh, the government under, uh, which under Mandela. Okay. So Mandela then faces, a big kind of strategic choice. Um does he just take them on uh, with the forces of of the the official army and 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 crush crush them, which he almost certainly would have been able to do. Because although this was a a, a pretty big force, if they'd really gone into battle, that they would have won. But many lives would have been lost, to state the obvious, right? He he didn't want to he didn't want to do he would he didn't want to do go that route. He knew that many lives would be lost, and he just thought it would be hugely divisive, right, at a time when he was trying to bring the nation together. Um, And so he invited the the general um, around to his house, Um, and the general comes with his uh, entourage. Mandela's got his own people there, right? So they're all prepared to have this kind of big, big meeting. And the general, who's this very, very proud, uh, quite old man by this stage, is surprised and really taken aback by how Man- Mandela treats him, because Mandela opens the door himself and he gives him a big grin and he says, "Welcome, very good to meet you." Shakes his hand and uh, sort of ushers him in, in, in into his home, and then he takes him aside uh, into another room and he says, "Look, uh, we'll have the meeting in a few minutes, but perhaps you and I can have a chat." And he. Serves him tea. Um, so he has a tea set later, and he, oh, like a, you know, this. He doesn't get a servant to do it. He doesn't kind of call in someone else. He says, "General, how would you like your tea?" And the general says, "I, I would like my tea with milk." And Mandela pours in some milk. And the general says, "Well, I'd like a. I usually have it with two sugars." And Mandela says, "Ah, oh, no problem," and puts in two sugars. Here is your tea. Now, I, I mentioned the tea because uh, twenty twenty years later, some somewhat many years later, the general remembered that moment as the moment when he started to come round to the idea of participating in democracy under President Mandela, right? Which is what he did. So, effectively, this guy was converted, taught out. Of a right-wing militia revolt against the government, because Mandela served him tea and was and was not quite, you know, deferential is not quite the right word, but was prepared to be in his service in this apparently small and trivial way. He was, uh, and I talk about it as as giving face to 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 to, to the general. Um, right. So this is a term from sociology, but, but actually, you know, it's sort of familiar term, which is, um, in any kind of public conversation, um, or any kind of conversation, there is, there are questions of face at stake. And that's a kind of, you know, am I getting the respect I deserve? Is my status being recognized? And when people don't feel, that they that they're being their status is being recognised. They get you know things start to go wrong in in the conversation, um, and so very skillful disagreeers. Um, because Mandela, Bright by, by the way, you know he wasn't asking him to to kind of you know agree with him about everything. He was just saying come and disagree with me in a democracy, right? And and he was saying you know uh, he was giving that general face in that in that when he was serving him into you saying. I understand that you are a man of of great status and I even though I'm the president I don't hold myself above you I don't think I'm too proud to serve you tea we're going to talk about this you and I as men that respect each other and so after they'd had tea and they'd had a chat they went into that meeting uh, and over the series of meetings to come they 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 came to an agreement about how to proceed so yeah I I, I mean Mandela was just uh he was incredible at this stuff he always understood that the way to get people who really kind of radically disagree with about very important things, get them to engage with you by showing them that you respect them on some level. So he showed not just in general, but he showed Afrikaners, white Afrikaners who had been part of the oppressor class. Um, he showed them that he actually respected their culture. Which is quite an amazing thing to do, especially when you think about some of the, 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 debates and arguments that are, that are going on today. But he saw it as a way of, of, of bringing people together and actually be able to disagree on equal
2: terms. Yeah. And to the giving face, I think you mentioned along the way, he, he had his whole discussion when he was, uh, was making the tea in Afrikaans. So he effectively, um, deferred to the other guy. And then when the guy was eventually elected, um, he went up to him in the parliament and in the capital, whatever their building was called, and went up and and uh, I think he offered him an embrace, but he shook his hand. Um, We just, you know, continually allowing the other person to feel like there's no inequity of power. It was just such a masterclass of howing, how to bridge disagreement so well.
0: And if you think about it, he had every reason and every justification for being absolutely furious and hostile with this man, right? This man, both as uh, what he was doing in terms of the revolt, but just over what he'd done for the last 20, 30, 40 years and, and for, for, for what the people he represented had been doing to Mandela, right? They'd, they'd put Mandela in prison um, and they had brutally oppressed his his people. They had uh, effectively stopped Mandela from seeing his children. He didn't get to see his children grow up. You know, what they did to him was really, really, really terrible. Um, mm. And yet his greatness of soul and, and greatness of intellect as well, I think, enabled him to see that actually I can still make a connection with this guy and with these people. And in the end, that's going to be better for me and better for all of us.
2: So listen, we're sort of, we're we're running out of time. Give us some practical directions then. So if if any of us are looking for pointers of how, not necessarily to win arguments, but to, to be a better, uh, to be better able at discussion and, and disagreement, are there any pointers that you would give?
0: There are, there are lots. Um, and, and, you know, the, there are lots in the book. So I, I won't kind of attempt to be comprehensive, but maybe I'll just talk about one or two, um, of the, of the most important ones. One is just to find some point of, of connection to, to the person that you're disagreeing with. And again, by the way, if you have a strong company culture, that problem is already solved for you. Do you see what I mean? Like you, you, you will feel hmm. quite a strong sense of of connection to somebody, whoever's in the room, when you're in a company where everybody kind of knows why they're there and feels good about being there, and 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 knows the purpose of the company. Right? That's one of the kind of incredibly powerful things about a strong culture. If you don't have that, uh, and if you're disagreeing with somebody, you don't have you know much knowledge or you don't know them at all. Before you get it, don't get to the disagreement too fast, basically is what I'm saying, right? Find something to talk about, whether it's, it's, it's the sport or your children or, or whatever, or in terms of the thing that you're talking about, find some common ground, start with what you agree with and then move to the area of disagreement. But basically, if you think it's going to be a tense conversation, don't get to the disagreement immediately. Don't avoid it. That's the whole point. We've got to confront it, but you don't have to go there straight away, right? So first, connect um another another thing that that i'd say is um make yourself if you find yourself stuck in in a a kind of bad argument bad disagreement make yourself curious about the other person or or the other people either make yourself interested and curious about them as people or about what the, the the position that they are espousing but if you kind of the, the problem, the reason it goes wrong is that people get stuck in defensive positions, right? And, and, and disagreements become power struggles. That's the thing they're always trying to avoid. And mm. it's hard to get out of it, right? Once you, once you get into it. But one of the ways you can get out of it is to say to yourself, hang on a minute. Why is, how did this person come to arrive at this point of view? What, what, what experiences did they have? What, you know, try and think about it from their point of view. And actually, you'll find that that just that intellectual curiosity, or that kind of empathetic curiosity about the the other person, helps you engage on that on the, on the, about, in the disagreement as well. Actually, there's some interesting research showing that one of the few things that that depolarizes political debate in America is when they you can they can kind of trigger curiosity about the other side. You can get some, if you can get someone really interested, going, "Oh, that's interesting. Why is that?" Then actually, a lot of these kind of status status battles will just automatically fade away.
2: More from my discussion with Ian Leslie after this.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. <laughs> you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Now back to my discussion with the author of Conflicted, Ian Leslie. Yeah, you told a story about the Confederate flag that someone in the aftermath of the Charlottesville um, protests, that someone found themselves in a car with someone who they violently disagreed with it, and it seemed to be that connection that bridged the gap.
0: So this is a friend um, of Susan Bro. Susan Bro. Uh, let's talk about Susan first. So Susan Bro is the mother of Heather Heyer. So uh, we probably all remember the Charlottesville protests um, uh, from a few years ago and and Donald Trump's inadequate reaction to them um and the fact that there was a young woman who was killed on on, on that day um and that young woman was heather hayer her mother was uh, uh is susan uh susan bro and i talked to to susan about her daughter um and uh about one of the interesting things about her daughter was that her daughter always wanted to talk to people with whom she really radically disagreed. So if, if she, at, on the day of the protest, she was going up to some of these far right protesters and saying, look, tell me, why do you think this? Let's talk about it. Right. Um, and you know, tragically, she was killed by, she was murdered by, by, by one of them. So anyway, this, we, 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 we had a conversation about that. She introduced me, Susan introduced me to, to Alfred. Um, and Alfred is an African-American and he's, Mm. he was Heather's boss and he's a good friend of Susan's and he was a good friend of, of, of Heather's. Um, and Alfred told me a story about getting a lift with a guy, uh, in a van. I won't go into why he had to, had to get the lift, but he ended up in the, in, in the front of a truck, um, with, uh, a white Southerner. And the drive was probably about half an hour. And after about five minutes, uh, Alfred looked behind him and saw that there was a Confederate flag in, in, in the back of the truck. Now, he then thought, okay, well, first of all, I don't like that, obviously. And then and then his second thought was, what do I do? Do I just not say anything? This is going to be a really uncomfortable ride if I say something. Uh, or do I just have it out with him? And he said, and he actually said that he he listened to the voice of Heather, right? So death, Heather had been mm. dead for for a few weeks by this stage, but he 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 got to know her well. And he said, what would Heather tell me to do? She would say, get to know the guy first. Find find some sort of connection, and then you must have the disagreement. You must have it out. Salford was not really a guy who relished confrontation, by the way. He was kind of a... He's a very nice, very kind of laid-back guy. So he just asked the guy. He got curious about the guy who was driving the truck and he started talking to him and asking him about his life. And it turned out that they had a lot in common. And mm. um, they had kids of a similar age. They were both working, two or three jobs to, to 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 make ends meet. Um and they had a had a good good conversation. And so once they'd had that. Uh, Alfred said, "Um, you know, I have to tell you, I'm not comfortable with that that flag in the the back of the truck. Um, You should know that that a lot of us feel really, uh, really badly about that. And the guy took it on board. Um, And they they said goodbye. And uh, a couple of days later, Alfred got a call from this guy taking his number. And he said, look, I just wanted to check that everything went all right that night and and, and you got home. I said, yeah, it was so fine. Thanks thanks for calling. Um, and then just before he went and said, by the way, I, I took the flag down. It's a, it's a great kind of model for, for how to think about this, which is even when you're talking about incredibly tense and important and profound disagreements, if you can find some sort of, Connection to the person before you get to to, to the to the disagreement is going to make that disagreement go better, and something good can come
2: of it. A good reminder of actually forging connections, forging relationships has come through all of the stuff that you've discussed. So, um, and so, so when's the book out? The book's out in February.
0: The book is out on the eighteenth of uh, February. So a couple of weeks. Um, and, uh, and then a week after that comes out in, in the U S. Um, so, uh, yeah, pretty excited for Fabulous. it to be out there.
2: I'm so grateful for your time today. Um, you're a, a great person to follow on Twitter and, and the, the internet as well. So, uh, I'll give links to all of your, uh, your Substack and various things like that on the, in the show notes. And I'm very grateful for you taking the time to talk through, uh, talk through such a, a brilliant and timely book. Thank you very much, Bruce. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Ian. Like I say, there's not going to be a whole load of new episodes in the forthcoming weeks, just while I try and focus on childcare and making progress with my book. But if you are interested in getting the latest on work culture and how work's evolving, then my newsletter at Eat Sleep Work Repeat is a great way to do that. Really appreciate the people who've been in touch recently. Always love to hear from, from listeners. So thank you for that. I'll see you next time.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.